10.30. So, so I'd like to welcome everybody to this uh, Sati Center event. I also want to point out the San Francisco Parisa um, for, um, that we meet and, and study uh, Tan and John's teachings. Is also a co-sponsor of this event. Uh, we've upgraded our Zoom link to accommodate 500 people. And Abology actually funded that, so thank you for for that. Um, big things for everybody to be muted. And um, if you have a question, you can go to the reactions or maybe other ways on um, Zoom to ask a question, but raise your hand. And then when Tana John asks for questions, uh, for the morning, I'll be uh, calling on you to ask your question, and then the afternoon biology will be calling on you. And remember afterwards to put your hand down also and to keep muted. One more quick announcement. If you feel inspired to give a donation to the Sati Center, um, go to their website or write a check. The important thing why I'm making this announcement uh, is two things. One, um, 95% of all donations for this event will go to Meta Forest Monastery. But the other thing, more importantly, is to put down, there's a space on PayPal to put down what the donation is for, because the Sati Center has a great deal of programs going on these days through the Zoom. And if you don't put down where it is, we won't know where it'll go. It makes my life as treasure confusing. Uh, so with that, I would like to turn this over to... Uh, Okay, let's start with some meditation. Find a comfortable position to get into. Close your eyes. And I'll give you some brief instructions for the meditation to begin with and then ask that you meditate while I talk. Okay, first start with thoughts of goodwill. Goodwill is your wish for true happiness. Your true happiness, the true happiness of all other beings. Because good, true happiness comes from within, there's no conflict there. So start with the thought, may I be truly happy? May I understand the causes for true happiness and be willing and able to act on them? And then spread the same thought to others. Start with people who are close to your heart, your family, your very close friends. May they find your happiness too. And then spread those thoughts out in ever-widening circles. The people you know well and like. people you like, even though you don't know them so well. To people you're more neutral about. And to people you don't like. 
remember that the world would be a much better place if everyone could find your happiness within. Spread thoughts of goodwill to people you don't even know. And not just people, living beings of all kinds, east, west, north, south, south, above and below out to infinity. We all find true happiness in our hearts. Now bring your attention to the breath. Take a couple of good, long, deep in and out breaths. Notice where you feel the breathing process in the body. Settle your attention there. And then ask yourself if it's comfortable. If long breathing is comfortable, keep it up. If it's not comfortable, you can change. Try shorter breathing or in, short, out, long, in, long, out, short. Heavy, light, fast, slow. Deep, shallow. You can experiment for a while to see what rhythm and texture of breathing feels best for the body right now. Or you can simply pose the thought in the mind each time you breathe in. What kind of breathing would feel good now? See how the body responds. If your mind wanders off, just drop whatever the thought is and you'll be right back at the breath. is off 10 times, 100 times, just keep coming back 10 times, 100 times. Don't get discouraged. Each time you come back, actually, reward yourself with a really good breath. When it feels gratifying deep down inside. And then, of course, why stop with one?
Now, as the breath gets comfortable, the next step is to be aware of the whole body as you breathe in, the whole body as you breathe out. To give yourself a good solid foundation. And a good way to build up to that whole body awareness is to go through the body first, section by section. A good place to start is down around the navel. Locate that part of the body in your awareness. Watch it for a while as you breathe in, breathe out to see what rhythm of breathing feels good there. And if you notice any tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax so that no new tension builds up as you breathe in. You don't hold on to any tension as you breathe out. Then move your attention up to the solar plexus and follow the same steps there. One, locate that part of the body in your awareness. Two, watch it for a while as you breathe in, breathe out. You see what rhythm of breathing feels good there. And then three, if there's any tension or tightness in that part of the body, allow it to relax. that you continue going through the body at your own pace, up through the chest, throat, into the head, down the shoulders to the arms, down the back to the legs. Do that at your own pace. And you can go through the body several times as you like until you're ready to settle down. Then choose any one spot in the body that's most congenial, focus your attention there, and then think of your awareness spreading from that spot to fill the whole body. If you can maintain that whole body awareness, fine. If it begins to blur out, go back to the, the survey of the body section by section again. Meanwhile, I'll talk. Aging, illness, death. In Western Buddhism, these are sometimes treated as peripheral issues of interest only to people who are already old, sick, or dying. Modern Buddhism could be called the cult of the present moment or the cult of the here and now. 
you know, that it focuses on the problem of solving, finding happiness and ease in the present as an end in and of itself. And in this context, issues of aging, illness, and death are only tangential. When they are addressed, they're, they're told, well, take the lessons you learned about being okay in the present moment, learn how to be okay about aging, okay about illness, okay about dying. And as for the question of what happens after death, it's usually treated as something that's in bad taste. In fact, some people question, say the question of what happens after death is not even worth thinking about. It's best left as a mystery on the grounds that no one can really answer. It's better to accept the mystery than to try to find answers to things you don't yet know. And when we compare this to the Buddha's original teachings, it's very ironic because it has the priorities backwards. And it's worse than ironic. It's a mistake on two levels. The first level has to do with the role that aging illness and death played in the Bodhisattva's original motivation to find the Dharma. When we look at his life, we see that aging, issues of aging illness and death were central to his quest for awakening. It was because of these things that he looked for the Dharma to begin with. He wasn't looking simply for peace in the present moment. Even though in his 20s, he saw the fallacy in the sentiment that says, I don't need to be taught how to die, I want to know how to learn how to live. He realized that if you don't answer the question of what happens at death, what happens after the death, it's hard to answer what's, what's a well-spent life, what's a skillful use of your life. He wanted to find answers to that. It was because of his desire not to suffer from aging, illness, and death. It kept him on the path. And it was because of his success that we have the Dharma. In fact, you say we have the Dharma because of aging, illness, and death, because one person's desire not to suffer from these things ever again. The text tells us that he saw that aging, illness, and death must come from birth. But then the question is, is birth repeated? Is it going to happen again? Is it something you have to prepare for again or not? And once this happened, do you have to suffer from it? These are the questions that remain unanswered until the night of his awakening. We find that the answers they gave after the night of his awakening come into two sorts. One is how not to suffer, or even when aging, illness, and death are still happening. And the other is to find how to find a dimension where there is no aging, illness, and death at all. And that's what we'll be talking about today. On the night of his awakening, when he got the mind in the right concentration, and realized he could use that concentrated mind in order to gain knowledge. First question he asked, basically, was, is, is there anything after death? And if so, what? And he saw that he'd been reborn many, many times. He says many, many aeons of births and deaths. Seeing his name, his appearance, what clan or species he belonged to, his, his experience of pleasure and pain, the food that he ate, and the way he died, again and again and again. Now, sometimes this knowledge is dismissed simply as being a holdover from his culture and that everybody in India at the time believed in rebirth. But that's not the case. It was really a hotly debated issue. Some people said death was followed by annihilation. Others said that it was followed by rebirth in which you stayed the same as you were before. The Brahmins especially like this one. If you're a Brahmin in this lifetime, you're guaranteed to be a Brahmin in the next lifetime. People in other castes were going to be in those other castes again and had to serve the Brahmins. But the Buddha saw from his own knowledge that that was not the case. That he changed from many, many, through many, many levels of the cosmos, from the very highest to the very lowest. And so instead of pursuing that knowledge any further, then he came up with a question, well, what is the factor that determines these changes? That became the second answer. 
And the answer was his actions, his karma, based on right views or wrong views. And here it's good to look at the way he responded to his particular sort of knowledge. You know, his, he said that, freely admitted, that there are other people who had these kinds of knowledges in their meditation before him. But his knowledge differed in two respects, and also different in terms of the questions he asked. And there, the differences were had to do with the extent of his knowledge. He saw much further back, so we could see larger patterns than they had. And he also looked in more detail. And this relates directly to the issue of how he later came to teach the Dharma. Because other people had had this knowledge beforehand. In some cases, they would see someone had done good in this lifetime and it went to a good rebirth. Done bad in this lifetime, gone to a bad rebirth. And they ended up teaching that action was deterministic. In other words, your actions in the past will totally determine where you're going to go at, at death. There were others, though, who saw that there were cases where someone had done good in this lifetime and went to a bad rebirth. Or done bad in Islam and going to a good rebirth. And these are the ones who taught that your actions had no impact on your rebirth at all. The rebirth was, changes in your birth are totally random. But his response was to look at the issue more carefully. And he noticed one thing that was very important. The cases where someone had done bad in this lifetime and gone to a good rebirth, the person had actually changed their views before they died. In fact, at the moment of death, in some cases, they actually acted on right view. And in cases where people had done good in this lifetime and gone to a bad rebirth, it's because at the moment of death, they developed a wrong view and acted on wrong view. This suggested to him that actions in the present moment can have a huge impact on counteracting the impact of your past actions. There is someone who is not muted. If you're not muted, please mute yourself. Okay. Okay. And so this suggested that your present actions were very important, that they could actually counteract the effect of past actions, and not only present actions, present actions in the mind. So that's what inspired him in his third knowledge to look at actions in his mind to see what actions in the mind were actually leading to rebirth, and was there a way that you could act that would lead beyond rebirth. And it was here he began to just look at the actions in and themselves. This was the other part of the question that he asked. He didn't ask who was doing this or who was going to be reaping the results of these things. This is where other people had fallen astray because they had noticed that there was rebirth. And the question was, what is there in an individual that remains the same from one life to the next? They got waylaid from the issue of aging, illness, and death and started focusing on issues of, well, who am I? What am I? What will I be in the future? What do I have that's of a permanent essence? There are those who had who asked the question, who am I, what am I, what is a permanent essence to me? And they got waylaid from the issues, whereas the Buddhist state focused on the issue of, well, what actions will lead to re rebirth and, and more further death? And can those actions be used to put an end to death? So we traced through all the actions that led through up to death, death. This is where we get dependent core rising. You have clinging, which is dependent on craving, which is dependent on feeling, dependent on contact, dependent on the six senses, dependent on name and form, dependent on consciousness, dependent on fabrication. 
And when he applied knowledge to fabrications, in terms of seeing their origin, their cessation, and the path to their cessation, that allowed for the whole strain of actions to dissolve. And it was this way that he was able to attain the deathless. So he learned two very important lessons here. One is that the best way to, that when one, it is possible to attain the deathless. That's answered his question, the big question of his quest. There's a dimension in which there is no aging, there is no illness, there is no death. And it's done by looking at actions in and of themselves, rather than being concerned about who you are or who's going to be receiving the actions. And he also learned the causal principle that underlay all this, which, as we said, was that some of the impact on your present moment experience is going to come from your past actions, and some of it's going to come from your present actions. And it's a combination of the two that basically creates your experience of the present moment. Now, this is going to be very important as we face aging, face illness, and death. Seeing what we're doing in the present moment is contributing to any suffering that there may be around us and how we can put an end to that suffering by changing the way we act. So the principles of karma are not totally deterministic. It's not the case that you did something bad in the past lifetime and you're going to have to suffer. Now, there may be some physical manifestations that are going to come from that, but the mind doesn't have to suffer if it's skilled. This causal principle is what lies at the basis of all the Buddhist approaches to how you face aging, how you face illness, how you face death. But it's also good to think about for a minute how, how much we owe the Dharma to the Buddha's staying on topic all the way through his quest. And this is what he wanted to see, what can be done so as not to suffer from aging, illness, and death. It's, it is the prime question of the Dharma. We owe that we are all our knowledge of the Dharma to the fact that he pursued that question all the way to the end. So what he taught, again, aging and illness and death became primary topics. When he is basically two main teachings, the Four Noble Truths and the Banakar Rising, are basically explanations of how suffering is brought into being and how suffering can be brought to an end. And in both cases, when the Buddha identifies suffering or, or talks about what suffering is, he gives, as his first examples, birth, aging, death. These are the big issues in life, and he's not going to shy away from them. This is going to take them on. So they had to put an end to these things. So that was the first mistake, we said, in, in modern Buddhism, which is not seeing the importance of the issues of aging, illness, and death had in the Buddha's own quest for the Dharma. The second mistake, is if we ignore the central role of aging, illness, and death in the Dharma, we miss out on many benefits to be gained from fully practicing what the Dharma has to teach. There's going to be more to the practice than just focusing on being okay in the present moment. You have to be heedful in preparing for the future. One, to provide yourself with a good range of opportunities to be available at death. And then two, to master the skills that you're going to need in the present moment so that when death or aging, aging illness, or death become present moment experiences, those skills will be ready. When the Buddha talks about being in the present moment or being alert to the present moment, it's always in the context of mindfulness of death. In other words, there's, there's work to be done here that you need to prepare. However, the focus is not so much on death in itself. It's, it's there as a reminder. And then you get focused on the work of mastering the skills that you're going to need in order to figure out how you can put an end to craving, how you can put an end to clinging, how you can put an end to the processes that lead to 
becoming birth, aging, illness, and death. And sometimes the question is asked, why bring in issues of death if you're going to be focused on the present moment anyhow? It's largely because issues of death bring a greater sense of urgency to your practice, and it's necessary to set higher standards. You make an analogy with learning a foreign language. If you're planning to go to Brazil just for a vacation, you may learn a little Portuguese. Or if you're conducting Zoom meetings with people in Brazil, you would learn a little bit of Portuguese to entertain the Brazilians and the Spanish speakers. But if you're going to go live there, and if you know that someone's going to pick you up and then take you there and force you to live there for the rest of your life, if you're going to learn the language, you're going to put a lot more energy into learning the language and learning it well, because you know that your survival depends on it. And it's the same as you're practicing meditation. If you're meditating simply to enjoy the present moment, okay, you'll have one level of standards as to what counts as an acceptable meditation. But if you realize these are the skills I'm going to need when my body is beginning to fall apart, my relatives are, are crying, doctors are sticking things up in my nose, in my, in my mouth, into my arms, and I'm going to have to maintain my mindfulness and alertness and my concentration and discernment through all the midst of that. It, it sets higher standards what's going to be acceptable. I'll give you an example. The issue of craving, which the Buddha said is the cause of suffering around, around all of these issues. In modern teachings that are focused exclusively on finding a pleasant abiding in the present moment, craving is defined as the desire for things in the world to be different from what they are. And so they, we're told that developing equanimity, patience, and contentment will be enough in order to not suffer from craving while we're here in the present moment. This relates to what one teacher once called the third and a half noble truth. Suffering may not be able to be put an end to it, but it can be managed. Well, the Buddha wanted to do, do more than just managing suffering. He wanted to put an end to it. But you have to realize that at the moment of death, craving is going to come out really raw and really strong. Those three types of craving that the Buddha identified as the causes of our suffering are going to be especially st strong as you're dying. You're being evicted from the body and everything from which you've identified as you are yours. Your craving for sensual pleasure as an escape from the pain of all that will be strong. If there's physical pain, it's going to be that much more desperate to just get away from the pain. An opportunity for pleasure shows up and you'll go for it. Often without thinking about looking at the fine print and see where is this going to take me. Because after all, the Buddha compares craving at the moment of death is like a fire. My house is on fire. And it's being blown by the wind to another house. And the wind is blind. And so we can't let our cravings take over at that point. We have to be in charge. So we have to learn how to overcome them and not get pulled along with them. Because all too often as we go through life, as the Buddha said, we go with craving as our companion. We're used to going wherever it goes and believing whatever it says it would be a good thing to do. We have to learn how to step back from it. So, okay, even our craving for sensuality has to be put away. As for craving for becoming, which is the desire, which is basically taking on an identity in a particular world of experience. This again will get very strong at the moment of death. You can't stay in this body any longer. You can't stay in this world. Where are you going to go? As long as there's a sense of me and mine, and what will happen to me? A very strong desire to find a new identity, take on a new place where you can continue having an identity as a being there. The idea of annihilation is just too scary to contemplate in most cases. In other cases, there's the craving for non-becoming. You're sick and tired of life. You're sick and tired of the suffering of aging, illness, and death. And you just want to be obliterated, annihilated. But that's not going to solve the problem. As the Buddha said, once you 
think of yourself as having to be annihilated or wanting to be annihilated, that in itself creates a new becoming. And you go to becoming which you're blotted out for a while. But that's not the end. You come back again. So this requires that not only that you learn how to have some control over these cravings, but you, you've got a real dilemma in this craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. Because each, each of them will lead to more becoming. And the Buddha discovered that the way beyond that was what he had learned in his third knowledge in the night of his awakening, which is you look not so much at trying to destroy becoming or trying to maintain becoming, but look at the processes, step out of the process a bit, and look at the steps leading up to it, all the actions that lead to becoming simply as actions in and of themselves to the point where you can develop dispassion for them. And then that dispassion is what frees you. Now this requires a lot of concentration and a lot of discernment. Simple equanimity, patience, contentment, tolerance will not cut it at that point. As the Buddha said, if you're simply equanimous, you're not going to get the concentration you need in order to gain any, any really good discernment. So keeping in mind the fact that you are practicing for how to die as you meditate, that will raise your standards as to one, what is an acceptable meditation, and two, what you're looking for as you're trying to overcome the cravings that are getting in the way, say, of your concentration, getting in the way of your discernment. So in reverse of the modern context, you'd rather see preparing for death as a tangential application of teachings that were originally meant to be focused on the present moment. What happens is that the present moment is part of viewed in the context of preparing for death. And when we meditate and focus on the present moment, we're learning to perform the duties, the formal truths, are that precisely the duties that we need to, to master as we're facing death, so that at the very least we don't suffer from it. If we're going to be reborn, we can direct ourselves to a good rebirth. Or ideally at that point, the Lord said, it is possible, if your right view is strong enough and your concentration and disturbance are strong enough, that you actually don't have to be reborn at all. You're at least into the into the deathless, which, as you said, is the highest happiness, the highest freedom, the ultimate truth. So those are the basic lessons that we can learn from the Buddha's awakening. Looking at how we're going to approach these issues of aging, illness, and death. Today, I thought I'd go about ways in which we apply these teachings to the process of aging and illness this morning, and then this afternoon we'll talk about death. <clears throat> Keeping these larger issues in mind helps to encourage heedfulness, which the Buddha identified as the source of all skillful qualities. But this practice requires confidence. I mean, it's one thing to say, there is no such thing as a good meditation, and whatever happens in your meditation is okay. But once you start realizing there are skills you're going to have to develop, it can get kind of daunting. People can sometimes wonder, am I capable of doing this? We have to keep remembering the Buddha's and Ananda's advice on when you hear teachings like this, Ananda's advice is <clears throat> hear that someone has gained awakening, and your the proper response should be, Well, why not me? They can do it. They're human beings. I'm a human being. If they can do it, why can't I? You have to convince yourself that yes, you are capable of doing these things. It requires dedication, more dedication than you might initially expect. But if you tell yourself, Look, I'm not capable of doing this, remember, if you stick with the path. The skills that you master on the path will make you a new person. You, be, you change as you get more and more skilled. So you sitting here right now may not be able to gain awakening, but the you who will master these skills bit by bit by bit 
will be able to at some point. In other words, you're gonna to have to learn how to give yourself pep talks as you practice. And you look at the verbs that they use to describe the Buddhist giving Dharma talks to monks and to lay people. And there are four verbs altogether that they use to describe his giving a Dharma talk. Three of them are pep talks. It says he instructed, he urged them, he roused them, he encouraged them. Okay, the instructions are things you read about, but the urging, the rousing, and encouraging, these are things you have to learn how to do for yourself. And it's an important part of the practice. Of course, there will be a sense of self that develops around that urging, etc. But that's a skillful sense of self. At the point where you don't need it anymore, you can put it aside. Meanwhile, make good use of it. So that's, those are the general principles we'll be holding in mind as we discuss the topics of today. Um, the two topics for this morning, aging and illness. Aging is a foretaste of death without warning. It seems alien that your body used to be able to control and begin to get out of control. The main themes that the Buddha talks about in terms of aging are loss of beauty and loss of strength. Now, some of the lessons we learn from the Buddha's awakening that apply to aging. One is your consciousness is supported by the body, but it does not need to depend on the body. So given that when the energy of the body is down, the wisest way is to prioritize its use to work on qualities of mind that will carry over to the next lifetime. In other words, aging is no excuse simply to rest. There was a series of Dharma talks that the, John Mahabhava gave to two women years back. One of the women had cancer, and she'd wanted to come to his monastery to learn how to meditate in order to deal with the difficulties of the disease. And he told her, well, I can't, I, I can help you with issues in the mind, but I can't look after your body. I, I, have, I know nothing about that kind of disease. If you can bring a doctor or a nurse along with you, I'll be happy to have you come. And so the woman had an older friend, an older woman, 80 years old, who was a, was a doctor, retired. And so she volunteered to come. And so the two of them listened to the Dharma talks for three months. And they recorded. He gave a talk every night. They ended up with 80-some Dharma talks. And they ended up with a recording of each talk. After they returned to Bangkok, the woman with cancer died after six months. And then the old woman, who was the doctor, suddenly found herself with this big pile of tapes. And so she said, well, even though I'm old, maybe I can transcribe these tapes. And so she consulted with John Mahabu, and he encouraged her. And as she said later, an important part of his encouragement was, as the body begins to weaken, focus on the goodness that you can still squeeze out of it before you have to throw it all away. And I've always liked that expression, squeezing as much goodness out of your body as you can while you still have some strength. And so the old woman, in spite of her failing eyesight, in spite of other weaknesses, was able to transcribe all 87 Dharma talks. And as a result, we have these two huge volumes. They're, they're among the best talks that John Mahavua gave or the best Dharma books. And so the lesson to be learned here is that you want to develop strength of mind in order to squeeze as much goodness as you can out of the body as it weakens. So that you have the good qualities that will carry over. And we'll talk about the good qualities when we talk about the section on death. And so given that your body's going to lose its beauty and lose its strength, the Buddha basically advises that you learn how to redefine your sense of what's beautiful at this age as the body begins to get, get decrepit. And this is not simply a matter of getting old. I mean, some people are quite young and, they, and their bodies get decrepit and weakened. And so it's good to be able to know how to take advantage of that. In terms of beauty, the Buddhist, the 
as the texts say. Beauty comes from beautiful will, beautiful intentions, honorable actions. They say virtue is beautiful even to old age. Your jewelry, your other things may not look good on you as you start getting older. They may look out of place. But the fact that you're a virtuous person, that will always look beautiful. Always keep that in mind. That's the beauty that's appropriate. And actually, it's the beauty that's appropriate in any age. As for strength of mind, that's emphasized to compensate for weakness in the body. The Buddha has two lists of strengths. Five in each, but there's some overlap between the two. And combined, they give you seven. The first one is conviction. Conviction, and again, the Buddha's awakening. That what he, woke, what he awoke to really was true. And what it, that means for your life in terms of the power of action in order to find your happiness. When you believe in that, then it, it gives you more and more encouragement to keep on wanting to develop develop more qualities and more strengths of mind. The second one is shame. Now, the shame that the Buddhists are recommending here is not the opposite of pride. It's the shame that's the opposite of shamelessness. In other words, you see something that is dishonorable. You could do it. You might be able to get away with it, but you realize, I just wouldn't want to do that. Shame is often defined as how you want to look in the eyes of others, and it's a matter of whose eyes you want to look good in. Here the Buddha is recommending that you want to look good in the eyes of the noble ones. What standards they have. And that, he says, is a, is a treasure, because it will prevent you from doing a lot of unskillful things that you would later regret. I've heard cases of veterans from, from various wars that have been going on for the past several decades, saying that as they get back home, they're haunted by visions of the, the children they killed and other atrocities that were done. And they said they give a million dollars to go be, able, be able to go back and undo that deed. Well, a million dollars can't do that. But if you start out with a sense of shame to begin with, it, this, this kind of thing is dishonorable. You won't you have that scar in your memory to begin with. In which case, that sense of shame is more valuable than a million dollars. The same with compunction, which is the next strength. Compunction here is realizing that your actions will have consequences, and the idea of doing something that would lead to suffering just doesn't appeal to you. In other words, you do care about the long-term consequences of your actions. You're not apathetic. You're not devil-may-care. You think seriously about what's going to happen down the line and take that into consideration. Another strength is persistence. This is motivating yourself to stick with the practices for thoughts of heedfulness, other thoughts of compassion, thoughts of goodwill for yourself and for others. These are important part of the practice is how you motivate yourself to want to do what is skillful and to abandon what is not. Another strength of mind is mindfulness. And this is not simply being okay with what's coming up in the present moment. Remember, mindfulness for the Buddha was a quality of memory. You remember what's skillful, you remember what's not, you remember what you've been able to do in the past that enabled you to do what is skillful, even when it's hard. You remember what you enabled you to abandon what is unskillful, even when it's hard to do that. And you learn to recognize what's skillful and unskillful in the mind as they come. This will be an important skill because many times things can come up in the mind and they look okay to begin with, but after all, as you get to know them, you realize, okay, this, this mind state has its problems. You want to be able to learn how to recognize that. The final two strengths are concentration and discernment. We'll talk more about these this afternoon. But the important thing is that you learn how to maintain focus. Once you make up your mind to go stay focused on an object, you can get a sense of well-being there. 
because this is good not only for just keeping your mind focused and, and under control, but also to compensate for the fact that when you're aging, there's going to be a fair amount of pain. There's going to be a fair amount of restriction in what you can do with your body. There's a beautiful passage where Ananda is talking to the Buddha. The Buddha is now 80 years old. And he says, you know, even Buddhists can get old, you know. And the Buddha says, yeah, it's not to be amazed. It's nothing amazing at all. It's just the way things are. He says, the only sense of ease I have in my body right now is when I enter concentration. And this is a theme we'll be getting to over and over again as we go through the day, that when the body gets sick or when the body gets aged or when you're dying, there's going to be a fair amount of pain. And for most people, their only thing thought of escape from pain is central pleasure. Whereas you have the pleasure of concentration that gives you an alternative, a better place to go. And then finally, discernment allows you to separate the mind from the pain, separate the mind from the fact that the body is aging and being real. So you have this, this body for which I, I've identified so long, which I've identified however you, uh, however you identify your gender. Being real, it's, okay, it's going, it's going, it's going. I can't identify with this any longer. And it's not a loss. I mean, if you can see it that way, then it's a lot easier to face these things. Those are a few comments on using the drama as you, as you age. We can talk about it more if you want in the Q&A. As for illness, this too is a foretaste of death, largely in the sense of not only that your strength is restricted, but also you have to deal a lot with pain. Now remember with illness, we have to face that in line with the, the Buddhist teachings on causality that he learned on the night of his awakening, that some of the things that are happening in the present moment are the result of past actions. And some of them are the result of what you're doing right now. So when illness comes, as the Buddha said, there are some illnesses that no matter how much medicine you give them, they're not going to go away. Other illnesses that you, even without treatment, they will go away. But then there are those that will go away if there's treatment. It will not go away if there's no treatment. And it's for the sake of that third group that medicine is given to everybody. And it's the same with your your, your, your mindfulness and your concentration. Sometimes it is possible through the power of mindfulness and concentration to make an illness go away or at least weaken. Other times it's because if it's an illness that comes from strong past karma, the illness itself will not go away, but you can learn how to put the mind in a position where it doesn't have to suffer from it. My teacher had a student one time, she had cancer. It was one of those cancers that just kept moving around the body. They would, would hit this organ and they would cut out that organ. They would move to another organ, cut out that one, cut out another one. This had been going on for about 10 years. And I happened to visit her one time right after she had had a kidney removed. And she was sitting up in bed and she was looking perfectly perfect and, and fine. And I asked her, you know, is there any pain? And she said, well, yes, there is. She said, but I don't send my mind there. And she stayed with the, her meditation where Bhutto. So even though the, she still had the, the karma that she had to suffer from the cancer, or have cancer, the fact that she was able to train her mind meant that she didn't have to suffer in the midst of the cancer. So we have to remember this. The Buddha will talk about even when you're sick, even though the body may be sick, the mind doesn't have to be sick. And there's a parallel between mental illness and physical illness. Physical illness, the Buddha said, the primary physical illness it's something that happens to everybody every day, i.e. hunger. You don't have to be old to get hungry. 
And he said the primary mental illness is when you're clinging to five aggregates. Now remember the word for clinging in poly is the same word as for taking sustenance or for feeding. So there's a parallel between our illnesses that we're, we're feeding on things. There's a constant lack in the body and there's this felt lack in the mind. And the practice is going to be aimed at getting rid of that sense of that. Maybe you can't get rid of physical hunger, but you can get rid of mental hunger. That's what we're going to be focusing on. In dealing with pain, the, the, the trick is learning how not to cling to it. And a good pattern to follow there is to think about the four steps and then the tetrad on feelings in mindfulness of breathing. First step is to breathe in and out, sensitive to rapture, breathe in and out, sensitive to pleasure. And this parallels a lot with the John Lee's recommendations and when there's pain in the body, that you don't focus immediately on the pain itself, you focus on other parts of the body that you can make comfortable with the breathing. So you're giving the mind another place to stay. And then after the breath has gotten comfortable in that other part of the body, then you can think of that good breath energy spreading through the pain and out and out. This moves on to the next step, next two steps, which are to be sensitive to mental fabrication and then to calm mental fabrication. The mental fabrication here, these are the factors with which you shape your state of mind in the present moment. And the Buddha identifies two, this feeling and the perception. And so first you're using this comfortable feeling in one part of the body to deal with an uncomfortable feeling in the other part. In some cases, you can actually make it dissolve and go away. Other cases, you can't, but there's a greater sense of relief and also a different perception of your relationship to the pain. You're not simply sitting there as a victim of the pain. You're taking a more proactive stance toward it. And when you're more proactive, it can't shoot you down. It's like someone's trying to shoot at you and you're, you're, able, you're moving around, moving around all the time. It's much more difficult for them to shoot you. That's one perception you hold in mind. But you can also look at the actual perceptions that you apply to the pain. This is where Dhammahabu's instructions on dealing with pain are very useful. You ask questions about it. Is the pain a solid block? Is the pain the same thing as the part of the body in which you find it? Part of you may say, well, of course not. But then but there's a part of your mind that might say, well, yes, actually, that's how I, I perceive it. You have to remember that we started dealing with pain back when we were children, before we even knew language. Our ways of understanding pain, our ways of dealing with pain often come from that period in life. And so we have to understand the strange perceptions and assumptions that we developed at that time. You have to ask some strange questions. So one of them is, or is the pain the same thing, say, as your knee, if there's pain in the knee? Is it the same thing as the hip? Can you see them as separate things? The image I like to use is a radio waves going into the room. You set up a radio in one spot and you tune it to one, one frequency and here in San Diego, you might get San Diego, you might get Tijuana, you might get Los Angeles, you might get Phoenix. The radio doesn't move. It's there in one spot, but there are these different frequencies going through, through it at any one time. And if you can learn how to see the pain as one frequency and the physical elements of the body, earth, water, wind, and fire as another frequency, it helps to weaken a lot of the sense of how the, the pain is impinging on you. As you see them separate, the pain becomes much less of a burden. You could also ask yourself, is the pain a solid block? And, or can you see it as individual moments of pain coming and going? When those individual moments come, 
Are they coming at you or are they going away from you as they appear? I find a useful perception of older mind is that they're actually going away. Years back, I was in Singapore. I was being treated a traditional Chinese treatment for backache. And the doctor was rubbing oil into my back. At first, it felt good. And then it got more and more raw as he rubbed harder and harder. And then he took these bamboo whisks and started beating me. And it didn't sound like, seemed like he was going to stop it anytime soon. And my first thought, of course, was, okay, what bad karma do I have? <laughs> I'm going to just go through this. And I said, well, it looks like he's not stopping. And I'm, I'm not going to be a wimp and say stop. I said, well, wait a minute. How can, how am I, this is a good opportunity to relate to the pain in the right way. And I began to see each time he hit me, the pain was going away. It was not coming at me. And that way, the pain didn't impinge on the mind at all. It's like sitting in the back of a station wagon facing backwards as you're going down the road. As soon as something comes into the range of your vision, it's going away. So if you look at the perceptions you have around the pain and see if you can replace them with better perceptions. This way you're not just resisting the pain to, to, through gritting your teeth and force of will, but you're actually using your discernment to change your relationship to the pain. And that way you don't have to suffer so much from it. Because remember, these, it's these two factors of feeling and perception that shape your mental state. And so you find some alter, alternative pleasures to focus on, and then you try, try alternative perceptions. And you focus on those two issues around, around any pain in the body. And you find that you live with it a lot more easily. And then watch out for any other perceptions that come in, especially the mind's conversation around the pain about how much longer it's going to last, this is going to kill me, am I going to die from this pain, to say, well, this is not helping at all. How much longer will it be here? How much? How long has it been going on? Don't think those things. This is where being in the present moment is, is a good thing. But you want to be in the present moment with a lot of discernment so that when, when pain comes up, you're not afflicted by it. So those are some of the lessons we can gain from what the Buddha has to say about aging and illness, looking at it within the context of how he found awakening and the lessons he learned from his awakening. So if you can give me just five minutes, I will be back and we can have questions. Okay. Who's up first? Remember to raise your hands. Yes, please raise your hands. Go, go to reactions or whatever it is. To All raise. right. Talk. 
Todd, Todd Thompson. Hi, Todd, uh, John, Jeff. Um, I have a question related to, um, um, oftentimes I've heard during meditation practice, uh, um, you said something along the lines of, just stay there, there's nothing else you have to do, there's nothing else you have to think about. Yes. Um, but I think at some point, there is something you have to do. And I mean, the Buddha had a question. And it seems that there must be certain questions you should maybe be turning to at some point in order to make progress, not just exactly along the lines of what you said, not being okay with the present moment is it's not, I mean, just being okay with the present moment is not enough. How do you know which question you should be turning to at what point? Um, I don't know how to ask it better than that. Okay. But when the basic question is the questions you're going to want to ask have to do with the four noble truths. Where is the suffering here? What am I doing that's contributing to it? And the right time to ask those questions is when you're ready. And knowing when you're ready is you try asking the questions and see what happens. Is your mind gaining insight or is it just getting blurry as you ask those questions? Do those questions raise spontaneously or not? In some cases they will. In some cases they won't. Okay. Thank you. And if you find that they're not rising on their own, you can give them a little push. Okay. Thank you. And John Fuhr once said that there are two kinds of meditators, the people who think too much and the people who don't think enough. And so if you know you have a particular habit, if you think too much, you don't think enough, try to compensate. Uh, Marisol. Good morning, Tana Jean. Um, I have a question about the reading. Um, the first one, I just, uh, on page 10, the faculty of convic- conviction is dependent on, or, um, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm not sure how it's worded, but the faculty of conviction depends on the four um, uh, factors for stream entry. Can you remind me what those are? Uh, you know, I, 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 I always think of stream entry as, as you know, the, the seven factors for awakening. And no, so no, this, I'm not sure. This is much more basic. Um, it starts out with finding people of integrity. Okay. And then listening to the true Dharma. Mm-hmm. Applying appropriate attention, mm-hmm. and then practicing the Dharma in line with the Dharma. Okay, now all of those sound very familiar. I just yeah. um, didn't uh, make the connection. Yeah, make the connection, and then the faculty of persistence. Uh, what are the four right exertions? Oh, basically to. Abandon any unskillful qualities that have already arisen and to prevent them from arising again. And then to give rise to skillful qualities and then to maintain them when they're there. Okay. Oh, okay. So those are in pairs. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. In pairs. okay. And then um, if you'll just give me a second to, uh, or a couple of seconds to look at page 11. Um, I had a question on the bottom of page 11. Oh, um, 
Oh, uh, actually, I think it's page 13. Um, so I didn't quite understand the bottom of, uh, uh, actually, it's in, it's, it's the uh, SN35, uh, 145, right there. So can you help me understand uh, that the I is old car- uh, karma? Because what you see is a result of old karma. What you hear is a result of old karma. Everything that comes through with the six senses is old karma coming back at you. But, but... I'm confused because we're, you know, we've been talking about what you see is already, I guess I'm just really confused then, because what you see is a result of what you're looking for. Okay, well, what, again, things, things that come in, I mean, you're looking for, if you're looking for a bird, but there's no bird, then you're not going to find it. Right? No, but if you're looking to get angry, okay, you well, that's, that's, get angry. Okay, yeah, but then you're going to focus on certain things. The things that are there available to you, that's the result of old karma. Now, what you're going to focus on, what you're going to elaborate on, what you're going to create out of that, that's your new karma. But, okay, okay. Uh, I mean, if, I clo- if I close my eyes and open them again, and will that there is nobody on the screen. It's not going to happen. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, so old karma is just what is available to us. What's available to us through the senses, yes. Okay. And then, but, but we... What we perceive is that's the oh, new karma. Is new karma. So okay, okay. Uh, thank you. I'll just uh, uh, stop there and maybe ask later. Okay, fine. For people who are chewing on food, remember that you're, you're appearing in public. <laughs> um, Valentine. Valentin? I don't know how to Valentin. Lori? Lori's next. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about the illness of the mind as in dementia and how that relates to someone being having concentration or persistence, which seem to be going away with a friend of mine. Yeah. Okay, no, if someone's got dementia, that's, I mean, the only thing that can help them at all is if you give them some, some mindfulness exercises to see if they can help stretch their mindfulness a little bit. Because sometimes it's, there are cases, you know, where the brain is not, is not, is not cooperating and whatever talents they had in terms of concentration or discernment in the past are going to be leaving them, in which case they're going to be more and more um, subject to past karma mm. and as as a caregiver or if you're helping them along your your job is to try to be their memory for them and help them remember good things that they've done 
it, if I bring them, I, and I am, and when she's um, agitated or scared, um, I can bring her back. But is that helpful? And, and yeah. even, oh, yes, yes. Okay. So even my help to help to get her to concentrate, and she knows she has Alzheimer's. She knows that she's losing her memory. Mm -hmm. So my bringing her to that awareness is helpful to her. Yes, and again, bring her bring her to the awareness of good things that she's done. Anything that would lift her spirits. Okay. That's it. what you're going to need at that point. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, we had an old man who was dying at the monastery one time, and to make a very long story short. He had cancer in, in the jaw, and you could see that he, every now and then the pain would be getting to him, and he started pushing his head back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the pillow. His daughter was there with him, and because he had been meditating on the word Bhutto, I told her every time she sees him do that, whisper the word Bhutto into his ear, and he would stop. Then he'd be okay for about two hours, and then he'd lose it again, and then it's okay, put it back in. And so, she, and she was with him all the way until his death, and she, she kept his mind state in a good state all the way until he died. She, this woman used to meditate, and she can't remember that she used to meditate. Okay, well, you don't. You have to talk about med meditation, but just say you know you, you may not just remember. You just you did a lot of good things in the past, and everybody loves you for all the good things you did. Good. Okay, thank you. Can mm -hmm. do. Hi, Tinojan. Um, in the uh, talk you just gave, you spoke a little bit briefly about uh, people kind of at the moment of, of the death will have right view or wrong view, and then they would, you know, correspondingly uh, be reborn in a good place or a bad place. Um, could you maybe expand a little bit on that? Like, how could you have at the moment of death, like, say, if you've been doing stuff that's been quite hateful? Um, how do you then at the moment of death just have right view? Or is it kind of saying, oh, shoot, I did something wrong. Maybe I can do something better next life. Um, that, that's, that's a good step. Yeah, I, I realized that that was a mistake. I, you know, I, I feel, you know, I, I recognize the mistake that I did and I don't want to make that mistake ever again. That's right view. And then and, and an important part of right view, which is often, is often missed, is that you have goodwill. And this is going to be one of the themes that we're going to find this afternoon when you're talking about the various hindrances that could hit you as you're approaching death. And the, the cure for a lot of the different hindrances is goodwill. Because goodwill is a, is a type of right view. That it's good that everybody be happy and truly inside. So like in the case of your father, you're having, having see to whatever extent you can develop goodwill for all beings, and if he starts realizing, gee, I you know I have those. There were those beings I hurt in the past. He said, "Well, make sure you don't do it again." Mm -hmm. And then goodwill for himself. Yeah. Um. Just on that topic, we found that um, coloring is really helpful um, to keep him focused. <laughs> like, there's also adult coloring books that um, that are out there now. Um, mm -hmm. It's actually good for both of my parents. They color a lot these days. Um, we're on a lockdown. <laughs> so I feel like I'm running a kindergarten. But, um, yeah, uh, I was just wondering, is there, do you think it actually increases mindfulness? I mean, it, it says so on Google, but I don't know. Um, you know keep, keep, keep them nicely occupied. <laughs> 
that's it from me. Lee? Uh, Lee? Lee, you're muted. We can't hear you. You have to unmute. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm technologically challenged. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the old and the new karma. Mm -hmm. It's very subtle. Old karma isn't necessarily bad karma, is it? No, no, it's good. It'd be good karma too, yeah. Yeah, okay. But if one, if one finds oneself, and I see this in my work as well as in myself, um, repeating thoughts or memories that are not skillful or that are difficult. And I'm very aware of that. And being aware of it, I can put it aside. In other words, my mental actions can shift from, all right, this is the past, this is the present. Now, what I've discovered is that doesn't change the pattern once and for all, but it does bring me back to a whole different frame of reference. And I'm not, I have to keep doing it over and over and over again. And I'm wondering if that's the beginning of a fresh karma. I even like that better than good karma. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's fresh karma in the sense that you're, you're developing a new habit. A new habit, yes. And then the other, but the other thing is when the Buddha says, when you see these things arising and you learn how to put them put them aside, then the next step is to, well, when they come back again, why do you go for them again? What's the allure? But when I, but when I say, all right, here it is again, and I bring myself back to something else, or okay. I'm not going for the allure, am I? There's something that, programmed in there that brings it back. That's yeah, well, that, that's, that's what you want to look for so that you can realize that there's, that whatever it is that's bringing it back, I want to. I want to see that. I want to understand what that is. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Susan, I have to unmute myself. Have you got me? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, in the readings, uh, Ratapala taught the four Dharma summaries to the king. And the thing that's interesting about Ratapala, uh, the four Dharma summaries being the world is swept away, there is no refuge. My favorite one, there is no one in charge. Uh, the four Dharma summaries, the king noted with interest that Ratapala understood these things, not because he'd gone through any particular hardship, but because the Buddha taught them and he recognized them as true. Some of us know the four Dharma summaries are true through direct personal experience, kind of raw and harrowing direct personal experience. So some of us are practicing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'd um, like to know if you have any particular considerations or cautions that you'd like to convey to us. I can tell you some of the things that I've done to my own practice um, that may have been unwise or things that I've tried to change it, but are you willing to address this issue? Sure. Um, what you've got to realize, if the world is not providing these things for you, you've got to provide them for yourself. And that's, that's the message. That's why Ratavala went forth, was to say, okay, what, is, what can I do? If, you know, the world is swept away. Is there something in me that I can develop that's not swept away? Um, the world is, there's no one in charge, there offers no shelter. What kind of shelter can I provide for my own life? 
Because if you simply think about how it, the world is horrible, 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 it's, it's, it's going to drive you crazy. But you yes. realize, the world is not going to provide this. But the Buddha is telling me I have within me the resources that I can, I can provide that for myself. What I noticed, and it took me a long time to notice this because I've been doing it for years. I've been doing sitting, sitting meditation. And I, I would sit there, you know, always with the focus, always with the intention of returning to the breath. But, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, there are alarm signals going off in the brain. I mean, the flashback film festival is rolling. Your body is presenting all kinds of symptoms telling you, you need to pay attention to this. Something dreadful is about to happen. But the thing is, I keep returning to the breath. And, you know, I'd sit there and let my mind beat up on me for a while. I'd return to the breath and then, you know, ding, the session is over. And I'd sort of pat myself on the back for just having endured a meditation session. But only recently I came to see that what I'd been doing, I don't get brownie points just for enduring a meditation session that's, that's that, you know, that, that's torturous. I mean, we don't have to repeat what the Buddha did. He already discovered that self-torture doesn't work. Right. So with reluctance, because I said, you know, I've actually been kind of torturing myself with my sitting meditation practice, and I've actually made an enemy of myself. I wasn't taking any joy of it. With reluctance, I said, I need to try something different. So I started doing walking meditation uh, in my house. I mean, my house is all on a single level. So I just paced the house through the living room, the dining room, and then an L-shaped hallway where, where you know, the bedrooms and bathrooms are. Uh, and it's, it, it's a different experience. I feel less threatened walking than I do sitting. Uh, I notice different things coming up in my mind. But the main thing is it, it, I have a greater sense of ease and it's not quite uh, the self-torment that sitting was, but I have this nagging sense that it's somehow an inferior kind no. of practice. Oh, no. Um, uh, John Sweat is reputed to have gained awakening while he was walking. So it is possible. Oh, it is possible. Yeah. In any case, I don't see that I have an option. If, if my practice is torture to me and I'm not finding any joy in it, I have to find an alternate way of practice. And so for now, I'm pacing the house and it's a little more easeful. Can you meditate lying down? What's that like? Uh, lying down, I fall asleep. Okay. okay. I'm able to do sitting meditation. For example, if I bring up one of your Dharma talks and you're talking, I'm able to do sitting meditation if I'm guided, if I have something outside of myself to focus on. But if I'm just sitting by myself, uh, I'm just going to get beat up on by my mind. Okay. What, what's interesting to me, what I notice my mind doing when I'm doing walking meditation, my mind is doing a lot of planning. It's anticipating disaster and trying to come up with scenarios of, uh, okay, this terrible thing could happen and here's how I'm going to respond. And I love the reading that was included today about the guy that uh, the, with the fruit tree. And he's like, well, the fruits aren't falling to the ground, but I can climb the tree you know, and grab some fruit and fill my clothing up with them. And then the second guy comes along with an axe. <laughs> I, I, love, I love this image because it, it's, it's an image I bring to mind when I'm walking and my mind goes into planning mode. You know, it, it starts forecasting disasters. And then I start saying, okay, what am I going to do to meet that disaster? What am I going to do to meet this one? And I realize there's always going to be some guy with an ax or an atom bomb or something. I mean, there's, that's not, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to return to, to, to your own breath, your, your own body and to find some pleasure in your own being, I guess, in whatever way you can do it, whether it's walking, sitting, lying. I don't know how many different options there are. 
But uh, thank you for letting me know that it is possible. Well, sure. Another person that inspires me is uh, Keith of Gautami, uh, the, the woman who lost her entire family in a single day. Yeah. Um, if, if that's not a traumatized person, I don't know who was. Yet in her own words that you beautifully translated, you know, she uh, realized unbinding herself and her heart was released. So walking meditation, if I think this is a problem of right view. I mean, I, I didn't catch on that I was supposed to actually find the practice enjoyable because that's my refuge. Is yeah. this correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. So before we go, go further, I just wanted to make one uh, announcement uh, clear to everyone. Uh, we are live streaming this on YouTube as well. So please be uh, cautious and not uh, discuss or talk, talk about personal uh, matters uh, for your own privacy's sake. Thank you. Mariana? Hi. Um, first of all, uh, thank you for the, the explanation about the old karma with the senses. That was a bit confusing. Um, one of the questions I had that's sort of basic about the the idea of going on, you know, to a new life or to a better or worse place based on what you're thinking or doing when you die is people die unconsciously. Like they die in the middle of sleep or they get shot in the head or something happens such that they're not really conscious at the time. So in that case, I'm kind of wondering is where they go dependent on sort of the state of their mind, the last time they were conscious or. Okay. Well, they may reconcile. They may regain consciousness right after they're outside of the body. So there's there's a consciousness that could happen as they transition, sort of? Right, right. One thing, and and my own experience, I I had had a near-death experience one time I was electrocuted. Hmm. And it's happened in the snap of a finger, but for me, it was like five minutes. Everything slowed down very quickly, and I began to realize there, there were a lot of decisions that I was making as I was as I was going through that period. But the people who watched it happen said it was just, it was just you know just a split second that I was electrocuted and I was able to pull away. So I think when you realize when you're leaving the body, you're forced out of the body, the mind suddenly speeds up, and it's consciousness of, of, of lots of things that wouldn't ordinarily be be conscious of. So say, someone who say dies in their sleep, they may wake up inside. Oh, well, this is it. This is it. I'm going. And so they're making decisions. The other alternative, of course, is that somebody who was shot. Um, my teacher had a student who was quite psychic. And her job was to drive around delivering um, oxygen canisters in South, Southeastern Thailand. And she drove past a lot of accidents, accident scenes. The police in Thailand are a little bit slower than they are in America to clean up after accidents. And so you tend to see more accidents on the side of the road. And she said she would drive past an accident and she would not only see the bodies on the, on the side of the road, but also the people corresponding to the bodies kind of milling around looking lost. And so she'd always stop and, and basically in her, in her meditation, talk to them and say, okay, now it's time to go on. Think of the good things you've done. Move on. 
which is why when someone's had a violent death like that, it's always good to say good things to them. Okay, that's helpful. Um, just uh, one other question is, when, I, when I'm going outside, and this is partly, you know, a meditation thing, but it's also just if I'm walking around or whatever, particularly walking, when I look at the world, I sometimes am very aware of, you know, this is passing or this will be gone, you know, in the Bay Area, this where we live used to be underwater 5,000 years ago. And these houses and everything that people think are so permanent will be gone. And other times I, you know, and sometimes I'm thinking, well, that that's, that's a helpful view. That's, a, you know, awareness of the transience of the life. And other times I'm thinking, well, it's, but it's so beautiful. It's here now. I'm lucky to live in a nice place where I'm not, you know, choking from smog or whatever. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering, you know, when is it better to be sort of aware of the transience of it and the fact that it will go away versus really enjoying and appreciating where I am? It depends on your state of mind. If you're feeling down, think about, well, hey, this is a really nice place. Heaven on earth, the Bay Area. Yeah. And other times when you're, when you're getting careless and complacent, okay, then it's good to remind yourself, hey, this, this stuff's going to go someday. What, what do I have that's a permanent value that I can take with me when it, when it goes? And you reflect back, well, it's my actions. You know, the good things that I do for myself, the good things I do for other people. Those are the things that are real value. So if I'm like reflecting as I'm walking around on, you know, I pick up trash or, gee, I could help people who are suffering, who don't have a home. That's, that's sort of a positive thing. Right. That, that's of more value than just sort of thinking about the world going away or, mm-hmm. or not yeah. being permanent. Yeah, because as I was telling Susan just now, and when you realize okay, the world is swept away, what, what is not swept away? Let's focus on that. Yeah. Okay. Dave? Dave Sato? Hi, Tanjan. Uh, thank you very much for teaching us again today. Um, I have a question uh, that is uh, related to the meditation work with Toh at uh, the moment of death. Um, kind of a follow-up to the story about the gentleman with the jaw cancer. Um, and it seems like it's very common um, among some of the teachers in the Thai force tradition to teach this word. Um, and um, it seems like when you teach, you kind of more focus on making sure we're paying attention to the sensation of the breath in the body. Um, and so, you know, being the butto seems like a very helpful single word to snap you back into your practice as you're being pulled in all sorts of directions as you approach death. Um, if we're, if we're um, not using a meditation word in our meditation, um, do you have any other suggestions uh, for something that can snap us back as we're facing death? Well, breathe. <laughs> if you've been focusing on your breath all this time, then there should be some really good, good, uh, you know, um, what we call it? associations with the breath. Where's your breath right now? That should be plenty. Because almost in a way you could just think, okay, remember my breath. Just remember my breath. Get back to my breath. The breath right now, yeah. 
course, as you're dying, you're going to have to leave the breath. And you say, okay, where, where's the state of my mind right now? Where's my awareness right now? I see. So almost like kind of jumping through the tetrads a little bit. Like, okay. Right. Body. Okay. Feelings. Mind. We'll talk about this a little bit more this afternoon. Okay. Thank you. Valentin? Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, Tanajan, I have a question regarding the uh, strategies uh, in dealing with pain. So I've been mostly focusing on uh, using the breath energy to, if I have a pain, using the breath energy to go for that area to ease the pain, to calm, and usually it goes away. Uh, how do, when do you recommend to use the other one to uh, use discernment to look into the pain? Like, how does it feel? Is it, uh, I, I never had to use it so far, so. <laughs> <laughs> you're very, well, I could say you're lucky in one way. Um, just sit for longer hours until there's pain and that doesn't go away as you breathe through it. Okay. Thank you. That's it. Thank you. Hi, Tanajan. Um, so I was wondering in your talk, uh, you're talking about that we should teach ourselves urging, rousing and encouraging. And to me, these seems quite similar. So if you could give an example of, of these three, how we can, uh, in our own practice, use these three different strategies. So basically, um, urging is saying, this is a good thing to do. You should do it. Um, rousing is saying, come on, you've got the energy. You can do this. Are you just going to sit there and do nothing? And then encouraging, and encouraging is more, come on, you, re you really can do this. We really believe in you, okay? Okay, thank you. Mike? Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, in response to Lee's question, I just wanted to talk about uh, different kinds of thoughts and the gratification that might come along with them. Um, you know, when I cut someone off in traffic and then, or sorry, when someone cuts me off in traffic and I get riled up, you know, it's pretty obvious kind of what the gratification that comes along with sort of more simple thoughts like that is, you know, defending my territory, you know, those types of thoughts. But then there, you know, I'm a primary care clinician and I treat folks with anxiety disorder spectrum and OCD. And, you know, they often mention things like intrusive thoughts or, you know, thoughts that kind of seemingly come up that really don't seem to represent their inner desires, you know, just kind of come out of the blue, you know, maybe something really unpleasant. And it seems like understanding those types of thoughts and the gratification that might come along with those thoughts is a little bit harder. Um, I wonder if you can just speak to that and how to sort of deal with, you know, thoughts that come along that aren't, you know, aren't obvious what to do with them or what the gratification is and how you can reflect on the gratification that might be coming there. Well, this is where it's good to think of the mind as a committee mm -hmm. and that you've got lots of different members in there that have some strange ideas about what they want to think about. Um, and you know, for people who feel intruded by it and those things, you have to remind them, okay, this is normal that everybody has members like this. Because a lot of people, you know, this is where people start getting schizoid is they don't even want to admit that there's that side to their mind and they block it off. And so as long as they keep it blocked off, it, they feel safe and then when it intrudes, you know, that's basically when their defenses are down. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the proper attitude is that, okay, I, I must have picked up something from maybe from somebody else that's just kind of hanging around in my mind right now. You know, John Lee's thing about, you know, the different consciousnesses in the body. 
That's a, that's a good one. And so there's, there's, there's one part of the mind and that you don't necessarily have to identify with, but it's, it's there. And just admit, okay, this part of the mind likes this kind of thinking. Yeah, I'm going to ask, oh, why does that part of the mind like that kind of thinking? Even though you in the moment don't particularly care for it, you feel, you feel threatened by it. Both as a clinician and a meditator, though, I've often found that, you know, it's sort of on a spectrum where there are some thoughts that feel very volitional, other thoughts that feel kind of more like they come out at random. And, you know, it just seems like, the, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a person with mental health issues yelling in the park to a certain extent, you know, that's somebody you kind of just don't want to engage with, but yet, you know, they're still there yelling. And so, I mean, I mean, I think like that idea of kind of getting to the bottom of that you know, for those thoughts that really don't feel very volitional and seem to just kind of come from past karma. I mean, that idea of kind of getting to the bottom and thinking about the gratification, I just haven't quite found a great way to do that, you know, or, or to recommend other people to do that. You know, it just seems more like it's something to be ignored and undermined through other ways, you know? Well, it's still, they, they, at some point, you're going to have to engage them. Mm-hmm. And the question is, do you feel comfortable engaging with them yet or not? You have to have to have, to have a safe space inside. Yeah. When you're doing these things. And this is one of the reasons why we work with the breath and work with it, you know, get the body as comfortable as possible. So you feel secure in the present moment mm-hmm. so that you can take these things on. If you don't feel secure, you don't want to take them on yet. Yeah. And then the other thing is just say whoever that is, whatever, whatever bit of that personality is, personally, just have lots of goodwill. Mm-hmm. This is my, this is my teacher's way of dealing with spirit possession. And it works. It works well with with you know, psychotic thoughts as well. Just lots of goodwill. What do you want? What, what's your problem? Thank you. I, c- I could spend the next whole afternoon talking about my teachers dealing with spirits. <laughs> Allergy. Hello, Tanjan. Uh, can I uh, please get the list of the qualities that you listed out that are that are uh, useful uh, to deal with aging? You, you listed them out, and I didn't quite uh, get a pen and paper pen and paper to note them down. You mean the strengths? Yeah, the strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there there's, it's listed in the readings. There are two lists of strengths there. Which one of those? This is under under the topic of aging. Okay, this in my in my in my readings is on page eleven. Okay. Okay. And then putting those two lists together, you got seven factors. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other question I had was: uh, seems like at the moment of death, uh, changing. You said that uh, changing the changing the change of right view or wrong view. Can kind of depend, can actually uh, guide exactly where you could be reborn, or maybe at least direct you in a different direction in case uh, you change it. Um, how much of a change in right view would be required? Uh, it seems like it seems to me that it, it it's it's rather extremely subtle. It seems almost like. Uh, you could have gone all your life uh, committing murders, killing animals, uh, 
all, all of that. And the moment of death, uh, you just say, gee, uh, that was that was terrible. That was bad of me to have done that. And that immediately takes you somewhere else. That seems a little arbitrary. I, I'm not quite sure that... Uh, Let's I'm put it this sure. way. You, you, might, you, might go, you might go to a good place, but there might be some bad things happening to you at that good place. Okay, so so in other words, the, the some of the karma would have some effect at some point in time. It might shorten my lifestyle lifespan for some while or yeah. some, something like that. Okay, okay. The other thing uh, that also was occurring to me was the present moment uh, uh, awareness act, actions in the present moment. Uh, if those actions are done with the senses, like for example, we are using the senses, the senses are also from past karma. So now we have a play, a point where we're basically using past karma and present karma together. And so is that, is that, and that seems to be happening all the time, right? So in other words, we're using what happened, what came from the, from the past as a, as a raw material. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To fashion out what's going to happen in the future, all the and time, the present, and, the, and the present moment, and the present moment. Okay, yeah. and and so that, that's the re, that's what we are trying to get training in during the meditation. It's just that it, it is just that we're always doing it. It's just that we don't do it very well. Uh, that's the only reason. Okay, thank you. It's like being a good cook. You, if, you're a, if you're a really good cook, you can take bad ingredients and make good food out of them. Right. Eileen? Hey, uh, good morning. And thank you very much for the teachings and for the readings that you gave us. I really appreciate them. And I appreciate the story about the, the Buddha wanting to find the deathless so much. Um, I told a few Buddhists that I know that I'm not interested in being reborn. I really don't see any realm that attracts me. And they said, oh, you're just practicing aversion. And anyway, you're not a monastic. And I just didn't know what quite to make of that. Um, but it didn't seem relevant to me. I mean, why, why would that make any difference or does it? And the, the, the problem I am having is that my job is so exhausting that I can never reach concentration, but it seems like you were saying that concentration is necessary. Um, so I guess I have to make a decision about my job. Is that where I need to go now? Yeah, to ask yourself how much do you want to continue working on your job and how much time do you want to have to work on your mind, yeah. Okay, that's a tough choice, but thank you for that answer. Yeah. yeah. Alex? Uh, Tanajan, um, uh, there's something I wanted to ask about uh, in the suttas. I don't know whether it was in the readings because I haven't read them, but in the suttas, uh, the Buddha becomes ill, and I think some of his senior disciples do as well. And um, one of the other monks recite the Bojangas, mm-hmm. and and then they they're the better. So I just wonder what your thoughts were about that. Is that you something know, we come from, or well, that, that that's one of those cases where the illness had to do with his state of mind in the present moment. And as 
the, the, the whatever past karma there was involved in it, illness was not all that strong. So that just strengthening his mind by remembering that those factors for awakening was enough to, put, to give, um, get past the illness. So was that was it a recollection practice? It's, it's basically a recollection because in those cases, all all those cases, they're all our hands. Yeah. So mm-hmm. would would that not be helpful for someone who wasn't? I, well, give it a try. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, what what qualities of mind would be skillful to induce in that person while they're sick? Um, in some cases, as I, as I said, it's how to think thoughts of goodwill. See if that helps. Just think goodwill for all beings, rather than focusing on on their their personal pains and, and illnesses. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anna John, it's past noon. Do you want to take? Uh, okay, let's, more let's, questions we've, got, we've got four questions. Why don't we just close the floor to questions and just re- take these remaining four? And then, then okay, we'll... that sounds good. Okay, so Deborah. Hi, thank you, Tan Jeff. Hi. Well to be here. Um, I've been focusing on making my mind like Earth. Mm-hmm. And so I typed into Dhamma Talks and I'm I've now listened to the first one, which was in 2019, about 20 times, and I keep picking up more and more. But can you, that, it, at first I thought that that idea was to make it so that other things that happened to me or um, are, you know, I could just be okay, that um, it, it doesn't, I can try to keep myself really um, stable. But then I realized it's so that when things in my own mind become visible to me or apparent to me that I don't get upset. Um, And so can you just relate that to this whole thing on aging, illness and death, just talking about making your mind like earth. Okay. There's a lot of negative stuff is going to come up both outside in terms of what the body's going to be doing to you. And then the thoughts that are generated within the mind. And if you're going to be dealing with them skillfully, you have to not be blown away by what is negative or even what is positive, because you want to see very clearly, okay, this, this is something I don't want to go with. And then understand, and then you have the understanding. Well, if part of the mind wants to go with it, what is the allure? What is the, what's pulling it in? And can I counteract that? Even if it's positive? If it's positive, then you ask yourself, I mean, you know, am, I, am I getting, am I going to, is this going to get me complacent? If it's positive and giving you energy in the practice, go ahead and, and you know use it. Uh, so more skillful. I should look at it as skillful as opposed to positive and negative. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, there was that. I don't know if you ever saw any of the Ice Age movies. No, I'm not sure. Wait. Okay. So the, there, there were these um, animated films about animals from the Ice Age. No. Okay. And... Um, I was on I was on a flight across the Pacific and the kid sitting in front of me had the whole set. <laughs> and you were flying across the Pacific, I got to see the whole set. Okay. And in Ice Age 2, there's this one scene where the, the characters are floating in this boat in a fog bank. And all of a sudden these mermaids and mermen start appearing, and they're all very attractive. And the and the, and the animals sort of kind of look kind of dreamy-eyed at these these beautiful creatures. And then as you look more closely at them, you realize that every now and then there's some sort of static in the picture. And inside the static, you begin to realize they're piranha fish. And I said, that was a great image. You know, things that look attractive, watch out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Lee? Um, Tom, Jeff, I want to go back to Eileen's question. Mm-hmm. Because for me, if I can't bring my meditation and working with my mind into my daily life, specifically my job, mm-hmm. which is working with some very difficult people, and here's an example to make you laugh. In my class now, they just screwed up the whole first assignment. So I'm really angry. But of course, I'm not, I'm not going to. I've been working with myself since Thursday. Of course, I'm not going to send them an email telling them how angry I am. So if I can't apply what I do in meditation to my life, it seems to me not too relevant. That's just where I am. Um, and I just want to know, I would like you to comment on that. Okay, well, your meditation has two functions. One is that you can live this life more, you know, more wisely. Yes. And then secondly, that you really do have to prepare. And what do I have to take with me when I go? Right. Well, right now, to be really honest, uh, I think I have to develop the wisdom to deal with 18 difficult students. <laughs> and if I don't do that, I don't think my my next life is going to be so good. No, and um, also, you would have the what? you would have the wisdom to do with your 18 difficult defilements, yeah. So so I've just it just it's very me I just feel that it's very important for me anyway to bring the wisdom of the sitting and the meditation and my study and reading to the details of my everyday life, students and otherwise. Uh, For me, I just can't make that separation now. The time will come, and I think about this all the time, when I won't have outer activity. But right now, for me, I have to bring the two together because otherwise it's not skillful. And it's not creating good karma for me. Well, this is going to be a decision everybody has to make for themselves, how to balance these issues. Yeah, right, okay. All right, thank you. What? Dear Ajahn, in uh, conditionality, the first one, ignorance conditions, uh, fabrications, Mm -hmm. but what are those fabrications uh, referred there? Because there is no consciousness there, there is no name and form are there. Okay, well, it's, it's basically another way of talking about name and form. Because you have the, the, you have in and out breathing is bodily fabrication. You have directed thought and evaluation is verbal fabrication. And then you have feelings and perceptions are mental fabrication. Now, if you look, you take those and you move them down to the, the factor of name and form, you see them basically repackaged. So it's different ways of packaging that what you are bringing to the present moment prior to sensory contact. Okay, thank you. Just another quick question. You said for calming the mental fabrications, keep different images in mind, this uh, water sprouting and spreading all over the lake and this uh, bath uh, powder kneading. That's one way. Whatever way you find it, whatever perceptions you hold in mind that help to calm the mind down, those are the those are the perceptions you want to use. If you're working with breath meditation, then you use those images. 
if you're, or you can have different images of how the breath energy is flowing in the body. And some of them are that more common. That is where I'm a bit confused because uh, when I'm following the body, the body is the perception or the entire body or the, how the energy is spreading. Then how to bring another perception? Okay, well, you can have the perception of the breath energy originating in the body and spreading throughout the body. That's one. Another is that each cell is breathing. And so there's no one spot in the body that has priority over the other spots. That's going to be even more calming. It's just like every, every, every cell is breathing. Every cell is awake and aware. That's more calming. Or you can Thank have the, you. The, the perception that, that you, the, the outline of the body is gone and that's just space. These get more and more calming as you go down. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think okay. that's it for the questions. Okay, fine. Well, thank you for your attention. And we'll be meeting back here at two o'clock my time and two hours, whatever it is in your, in your time where you are. And we'll talk about death. <laughs> thank you very much, Tanajan. Thank you, Tanajan. Thank you, Tanajan. Thank you, Thank you, Tanajan. 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 Thank you, Tanajan.